Let's pray. If you have your Bibles with you, we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16a. And that's page 1179. Philippians 2, 1 to 16a. So here the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. We've got a birthday coming up in the next few days. Anyone? Anyone got a birthday? How old are you, sir? Right? And how old will you be? Sorry? 45, a young man. Fantastic. On February the 27th, I will be 30. Now, on February the 27th, I will be 30. Now, let me be clear about this, that is my born-again birthday. Because um, on the 27th of February, 1987, sometime between 1 o'clock and 1.30, but I can't be exact, without having anticipated this, and maybe in a sense subliminally avoided it, Jesus Christ broke into my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I was converted. Converted from the background of scientific atheism. So I'm 30 on February the 27th. And I like that because that makes me a, min a millennial, which is great. It means that I, I, I get to go to the 18s to 30s group, which is cool. But the reality is, tomorrow I will be 62 years old, okay? And, yeah, and as I said this morning, 
You know you're getting older when people applaud your age, you know. Oh, bless him, he's managed to get to 62, that's wonderful. And when you've got friends like Ross, who this morning announced to the church at the 10.30 service, it is going to take up a love offering so that the church could buy me a Zimmer frame and have Go Faster Stripes painted on it. I mean, what, what can you do? You just, that's not all you can do, you know. What else can you do? You can try and stay cool and down with the kids by doing a dab, but that's the only thing you can do, you know. What else can you do? I want to tell you what you can do. You can be people that still have a passionate vision beating in your heart. Because you'll never fill the hole in your life with enough flashcards and great technology and beautiful homes and spectacular holidays and the trophy boyfriend, girlfriend, husband or wife. There will never be enough to fill the hole in a human heart other than Jesus Christ and a vision of him. Because he has got his call upon our lives. So let me give you my preferred definition of vision. We're in a month of vision. You see behind me, in beautiful contemporary art, and I'm great to, grateful to the, to the artist that created this. There's a word within a word. The word within the word is getting clearer, but I'll give you a clue. It's a three-letter word, and it's not sin. We don't want to say, hey, what we need at the beginning of this year is to do a lot more sinning. No, that's not the vision. Okay? The vision is a vision of a person. And that person has made it clear to us that he has a picture of a preferred future. He calls it the kingdom of God. And as the rule and reign of Jesus Christ comes, things get better. Wherever he was, sick people got healed. Those who were plagued and held and oppressed by evil spirits got set free. Lepers got cleansed. The dead got brought back to life. The grieving were comforted. The hungry were fed. Women were given dignity and respect. And vision for me is a picture of God's preferred future. And you've probably heard me say before this, that actually vision without action, well, that's just a dream. Action without vision, well, that's just passing the time. But vision with action, with a strategy, that changes the world. So we are preaching a month of vision Next week, Ross will preach the final message. He'll preach three times next Sunday, and he'll preach about the strategy. But if you want the vision in a sense, it's in the sentence that's behind me. And I know some of you don't like this, but I would really love you to say this with me. So let's try and capture this as we say this together. Following Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and others. Let's say it again. Following Jesus in all of life, Growing in love for God and others. And at week one in January, at the first of our vision days, I spoke about following Jesus in all of life. I made it clear that it's about whole life discipleship. We're not just Sunday Christians, if you are a Christian. It's something that is lived out in every moment of your life. Following Jesus in all of your life. On your front lines where you encounter people who have no idea of the love of God. No idea of the existence of God. No idea of the reality of Jesus Christ who has died and resurrected and is coming back and is present by his spirit amongst us. In week two, Ross spoke passionately about growing in love for God and others. And he said, well, what kind of love? And he said, there's at least four words in scripture for love. But the, the word that he wanted to make clear to us was agape or agape. 
a sacrificial love, a self-giving love, the love shown by Jesus Christ on the cross. We need to love God in that way and love others in the church and beyond it in that way. Now this love letter from God, the Bible, says that without vision the people perish. That's in the King James Version of Proverbs 29, 18. In the New International Version, this version of the Bible, it's a different translation. It says, without revelation, in other words, without revelation from God, usually through a prophet, a seer, without revelation from God, the people cast off restraint. They perish because they go in any old direction, just not the right direction. But I also want to say a vision without a strategy is just a liability. It's just fancy words that often stays on a wall, on a poster, on a screen, or in someone's filing cabinet. But without a strategy to deliver it, not much happens. So I want you to look at the image that you see behind me. And I'm going to give you some visual representation about this. Because if it's all about being followers of Jesus, and it is in that strap line, in that vision or mission statement, whatever language you prefer, then we need a strategy to help us to deliver that as a church. So as a church, we want to be those who are seeking new disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going looking for those who don't yet know that there's a God who loves them and wants to bless them in this life and for eternity. We need to be supporting those who follow Jesus. And as well as seeking new followers of Jesus and supporting followers of Jesus, we need to be sending followers of Jesus, not just the wonderful young people. Anyone here tonight who's going to Mexico to build homes for homeless people? Just stand up right now. Come on, stand up right where you are. If you're going to Mexico to build homes this year, give them a round of applause, please. Thank you. You can sit down. They're missionaries. We've got people in China. We've got people that were linked within Nepal. We've got people in Papua New Guinea. I'm going to go and visit them. It's the longest pastoral visit I've ever been on to Papua New Guinea. They still have cannibals there. They'll take one look at me and think, he will keep us in food for a month. But it's all of us. We send all of us every day of the week onto our front lines. This is a vision for everybody. So do it with me, will you? Seeking, come on, seeking, supporting, and sending. Okay? That's not part of the vision, but there's an extra one for you there. Okay? So it's seeking, it's supporting, and it's sending. So in other words, we're a church with a vision, I hope, please God, we're a church with a strategy to deliver that vision. But let me tell you, you might have read a great book, or more than one book, by a great Christian author who's a Baptist minister called Rick Warren. Heard of his books? Rick Warren established a church in California called Saddleback Church. Saddleback Church began with his family and one other family. The estate agent in the town where he went to see if he could rent a property. That estate agent and his family joined Rick Warren. Rick Warren's church has grown to thousands upon thousands of people. Rick Warren led the prayers, not at Friday's presidential inauguration, but one of the ones before that for Barack Obama. He led the prayers. That's the kind of guy in profile he's got. And he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. But he'd written another book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it's sold in its millions around the world. He's given much of the royalties away. He's paid back all of his salary to the church. He just lives off part of the royalties of that now. And Rick Warren's book is absolutely brilliant. It captures the fact we need a picture of God's preferred future for the church if the church is to change to become all that God wants it to be. 
and I'm not the one to tell Rick what kind of title he should have, but if I was and I'd want to say, Rick, how about this? Value-driven church. Values-driven life. Because without values, we go completely and totally and utterly astray. So I want to talk tonight about the values that we want as a church and about the love that binds together all of these values. Because as we come to this text that Ross read for us, this beautiful hymn or piece of poetry that Paul includes in Philippians chapter 2, he's writing to a, a Roman colony that says Caesar is Lord, or at least Christians within it, Caesar is Lord. But as Paul reminds this church that for them, Jew or Gentile in this one church, Jesus is Lord, he gives a picture of Jesus Christ who is fully human and fully God, but a picture of one who took the form of a servant in human likeness and became obedient in humility to death, even death on a cross. And in an honour-shame culture, as there was in Philippi, this great Roman colony, that was anathema to most of the people there. Those Christians must be weird. It's about getting as much honour as you can. It's about avoiding as much shame as you can. Humility is for my slaves and servants, not me. And into that, Paul uses, you can see it there in the chapter, it's indented as poetry or a hymn. This was either sung or a poem that was read in worship to remind those early Christians who Jesus Christ was. Listen to the first five verses. Paul says to these Christians in Philippi that he knew well, many of them at least, who'd been involved in the establishing of the church. He says, if you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you've got any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in other words, if any tenderness and any compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. What, the same love as Jesus? That agape love that lays its life down? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Being one in spirit and purpose. Having revelation, vision from God to move together as a church into God's preferred future. That's what vision's all about. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Listen to verse 5 of Philippians 2. You're, therefore, our, not just the Philippians, but you and me, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Wow! Christ Jesus had a beautiful attitude. A beautiful attitude. Our attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to give you what I call the big five. Five core values, five attitudes, beautiful attitudes. Just like the attitudes for, that Jesus gave to those when he sat down to teach his disciples in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and thousands gathered around them as Jesus is teaching the disciples. And he talks about these beautiful attitudes, the beatitudes, blessed are those, happy are those, who live the values of the kingdom. Let me just remind you of a few of those. If you've got a Bible, you might want to go there to Matthew chapter 5, because these are some of the most beautiful attitudes that we've ever, ever heard of. Listen to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers, no, the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Much more than happiness, to be blessed, to be fulfilled, to be contented. We need these beautiful attitudes, say, say Jesus. It's only possible in him and with him. But these are the core values that should mark us in terms of pursuing that strategy and the vision that we're looking at. They're exemplary behaviors, behaviors to evidence in our life as disciples or life disciples. They're traits or markers that make us motley members if we are motley members. I'd urge you to do the membership course. This church is an exciting place to be. Get on board. They're descriptors of us as whole life disciples. Those who are following Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and love for others. That's the statement. And we're going to look at these values in just a moment, these big five values. But before we do, let me say this. It's our beliefs that shape our attitudes. It's the beliefs, whether we're aware of them or not. All of us have a worldview. All of us have beliefs deep within us, and that shapes the way we are. Do you know the tragedy is? I meet so many Christians who are down on themselves. I meet so many girls and women who, because of the way women are portrayed by the media, they feel they have to be perfect and wonderful and beautiful. And some of the beautiful women that you can encounter just feel bad about themselves because things that have been spoken into their lives can make them feel like trash. Isn't that tragic? Isn't it sad? I mean, guys who are so beaten up that they're sometimes tempted to join one of the most horrific statistics about the UK. Do you know the most common cause of death for men under 50 is suicide? Did you know that? What kind of a society are we in? I tell you what, we're in a society that needs a new vision and a new purpose and a new future and that's got to be a vision of Jesus. So our beliefs lead to our feelings. Our beliefs affect us. The things at our core, at our heart. And the things that are at our core and our heart, those are the things that direct our behavioral intentions. How you're going to behave, what you're going to do, how you're going to respond... That's down to your beliefs, which give you your values, those affectations, those feelings that make up who you are. Your view of you, your view of the world, yeah, your view of God and your view of other people. And what I hope and I pray for these big five core values is when you cut through someone who worships at Muttley Baptist Church, like a stick of Scarborough Rock, that's my hometown, Scarborough. You can get it in Blackpool, but it's just not as good, okay? And if you know that sticky, almost 100% sugar stuff that nobody would recommend as a health food, you know, rock, wherever you cut through Scarborough or Blackpool Rock, you'll find the name Blackpool or Scarborough, depending where you bought it. And what I hope and pray is that when you, not literally, but when you cut through a Christian, what you find is that Jesus and the values of his kingdom are running right through our life. Do you know there are people who are not even Christians who long for these values? I'm still setting up about these five values. You may or may not agree that they're five good ones to go with. I'm going to tell you what they are in a minute, but I want to tell you that as I was reading on Christmas Eve, Saturday, December the 24th, 
in the Times newspaper, I looked at the comment there and I picked out this article by Matthew Paris. Matthew Paris headed his comment article, This Atheist Believes in Church and Crown. This Atheist Believes in Church and Crown. His subtitle was this, Secular Liberals May Disagree, But Christianity's Message of Tolerance is Why It Remains the Foundation of Our Culture. The whole point of his article is, I'm not a believer. I'm not a monarchy. I'm not a, a royalist. I don't believe in the monarchy. But the church and the crown and the Christian faith and our monarchy are at the heart of the foundation of our nation. Listen to what he says. He says, although I'm not a Christian and have no doubt the whole faith is based on a tremendous misapprehension, I love the Christian religion, he says. To some extent, the affection even many non-believers have for our own church of England arises because in Britain, Christianity has been tamed and no longer feels like a threat to anyone. We need to change that. Not a threat by bombing abortion clinics. Not a threat by making gay people who don't choose a sexuality feel reviled and rejected. No, we need to be a threat to those who oppress, to those who are ministers of injustice, to those who just don't show love, to those who just don't care, to those who just want power. We need to be a threat in the right way to them. We need to pray for our enemies as Jesus taught us. He goes on to say, yet I do think there's something more, something at its heart that is on the side of light that something is Jesus, if only it ended there. But Matthew Paris adds, that something is Jesus, the brave, deluded man, who in his life or in our subsequent interpretation of his life, and probably both, shone a beam on those human tendencies that will raise the condition of our species and bring human progress and most important, human happiness. I mean mercy, understanding and the will to cooperate. Towards the end of his article, he says this. This year has seemed to me to tilt the world somewhat away from those trying to keep people together and towards those who want to push us apart. I know which side I'm on. And if crown and church are there too, I'm not too stubborn to join them. And then he quotes the poet John Betjeman. He says, and is it true? That's John Betjeman. And is it true? This most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall. Betjeman's speaking about Jesus Christ and whether he's the way, the truth, and the life. And this is how, sadly, Matthew Parrish Paris finishes his article. The poet does not answer the question. I am afraid it's not true, but if only it were. I want to say with all my heart, just give me two hours with Matthew Paris. I'm not arrogant enough to think I might convert him, but maybe I might. Because at the age of 32, God turned this atheist round. Because when you meet Jesus, everything changes. And it is true, Matthew. And it's what the world needs, and it's what this church needs, and it's what Plymouth needs, and it's what the United Kingdom needs. But if we keep doing what we've always done, we'll just get what we've always got. Let's come to these attitudes. Let's come to them right now. You see, if we're going to be those who are seeking and supporting and sending followers of Jesus, then we need right attitudes towards God, right attitudes towards our sisters and our brothers, and right attitudes towards others who are not our sisters and brothers in Christ. 
whatever religion or no religion, atheists or Buddhists or Muslim or people who are just not sure, we need to be living these values out. And the first one is undoubtedly worship. Jesus in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, he silenced the Sadducees. He told them they knew neither the word of God nor the power of God. And they reckoned they did. And then the Pharisees come after him. And an expert, a teacher in the law, asks Jesus this question, trying to trap him. Which is the most important of all the commandments and law? What, what's the pinnacle? And Jesus makes it clear in these verses, 37 to 38 of Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus makes it clear this is true worship. It's about the heart. It's at the heart of worship. And when Paul, in that beautiful hymn, that song, that poem, whatever it is in Philippians 2, by the time we read from verse 9 to verse 11, we read this. In the light of Jesus' sacrifice, the one who is in very nature God, coming in the flesh as a human being and dying on a cross in humility, laying down his life for others on that cross, he says this, therefore, verse 9 of Philippians 2, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, Jesus that is, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's worshipping Jesus. Matthew Paris has it completely wrong on Christmas Eve in the Times. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't just a man. He was in very nature God, God in the flesh. He wasn't deluded. He saw more clearly than ever any other human being who ever walked this planet because he came from heaven. He was born of a virgin. And he showed us what it is to worship. He said, I do only what I see the Father doing. You never see greater love for God the Father than through God the Son. You never see greater love for mankind than through God the Son, Jesus, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So worship has got to be our first and our primary calling. When I was praying with the worship team and Ross and Ricky, who is leading our team tonight, beforehand, someone prayed that we would enjoy our worship. Do you know there's a great catechism of faith, the Westminster Confession, and it says that our primary calling is to love God forever and to enjoy Him, to worship God with everything we've got and to enjoy Him. Do you enjoy worship? Well, so you should, because when you're drawn into the presence of God, as that uh, catechism, as that confession puts it, that's what we're all about. Until the people out there, your friends, your family, those who don't know Jesus, until they've got that Jesus-shaped jigsaw piece that is missing, put back into their life, there is something empty within them. There's something that's missing within them. So we come in worship. But when we come to worship God, we end up experiencing, I hope, humility. Humility before God and humility before man. Because when I come to God just as I am, he shows me just what I'm like. And what breaks me is he loves me just the way I am. It's just that he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. Are you with me? So that means it desires, it makes a desire in me that I've got to be a person of humility. Because I know I get it wrong. I need to be humble before God and man. 
Remember that verse, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus in Philippians 2. Listen to verse 3. Paul says very clearly, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And if you drop down to verse 6 in Philippians 2, we read that this one who was in very nature God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped for his own means, no. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You want to know how much God loves you? Look at a garden called Gethsemane. Because in Gethsemane, Jesus and his humanity tried to find any other way. He said, Father, if there's any way, take this cup, this cup of suffering. He's facing the brutal crucifixion, the agonizing death of Good Friday on what we call Monday Thursday. If there's any way, take this cup of suffering from me. And yet he says, yet not my will, your will be done. He chooses you. He chooses me. He chooses the cross. Incredible humility. So, Ross has got it right. You know, at seminaries, at Bible colleges, at ministerial training colleges, they don't teach you to do what Ross did at the start of the service tonight. They don't teach you as a minister to be absolutely raw and honest and share with your congregation that just like them, sometimes you have doubts too. Even though theologically, any Bible college or theological seminary worth their salt would make it quite clear that it's not sinful to doubt. Unbelief is sinful, but everybody doubts. Judas was in unbelief, but Thomas, doubting Thomas, he doubted. But he laid down his life later as a martyr. As Ross put it, some of the greatest saints have had their doubts. Doubt's not a sin. Faith will come back. Even when you don't feel it. Mother Teresa didn't feel the love of God for years, but she kept doing what she did out of humble, authentic, worshipful lifestyle. Authenticity is crucial. I'm just going to read a little bit about this because words are important. We had an elder of the church telling that to our children and young people and all of us this morning. If you'll go with me to Ephesians and chapter 4, I want to talk a little bit about authenticity and the way we speak to each other and the way we are honest with each other. Because Paul, same apostle that wrote Philippians, he says in Ephesians 4 from verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Don't be like that anymore. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Here it is again. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, inauthentic lifestyles, put that off and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. So you've got to tell me if I'm being inauthentic. If I'm preaching one thing and living another, you've got to tell me as your minister, your pastor. And you've got to let me speak truth to you if I don't see that your lifestyle is measuring up with what you claim to be as a 
disciple of Jesus Christ. But remember a few more bits of advice. In verse 15 of Ephesians 4, Paul has already said, speaking the truth in love will grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. As we lovingly and authentically speak to each other and challenge each other, we grow up to become more like Jesus. And then he adds an extra caveat in verse 29. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So we speak the truth in love to each other. We speak the truth to build each other's up. We put off the old ways and the deceitful desires. We put on the new self and we get the attitudes of our minds changed as we live authentically before God and before each other. Authenticity. You know, the world doesn't need one more inauthentic Christian. A word for students at university or college. I hope the mission week is awesome. I hope it's absolutely brilliant. I hope CUs grow and they thrive. But I want to say this. The thing that will make the biggest difference in the lives of those people in your shared flats, your accommodation, your halls of residence, and your lecture theatres, and the ones that might turn up for the mission, the thing that will make the biggest difference is whether you are living this authentically. Whether your walk matches your talk. And that's true for all of us, student or not. And then there's this value of compassion. In Mark 1, 41, we have the record of Jesus' response to a leper. And as a rabbi, he shouldn't be within miles of a leper, but this leper comes up to Jesus. Everybody would have moved away and shunned the leper. This leper comes up to Jesus and says, if you will, if you are willing, you can make me clean, you can heal me. And it says that Jesus, Mark 1, 41, is filled with compassion, and he reaches out and touches a leper. He touches a leper. Could have been infected himself. As a rabbi, it makes him immediately unclean. Just as hanging on the cross covered in my sin and your sin made Jesus unclean. But with a heart full of compassion, he does that. Do you know, I'm glad I'm in a city where the churches show such compassion. This is pretty reasonably hot off the press. The cinnamon faith action audit for all the churches in Plymouth and every other religious group. So if you want to know what the Christian church does and what other religious groups do, you wouldn't be surprised to know that the Christian church is doing, in humility, so much to make a difference compared to other groups. This is um, a neutral report and it says, in Plymouth we counted 636 projects 120,000 plus beneficiaries in 2014, 3,839 uh, 3, volunteers, and about £8 million of financial value being provided by faith groups in the area. I could go on and on and on. But if you get this little booklet, Caring Plymouth, Churches Together in Plymouth, and all the different things that are done, you have got the absolute tangible proof that when Christ is living through his church, and Christians act in compassion, the next thing they do is they serve God by serving others. And that takes us to our final core value. I'm going to read from Romans 12, verses 4 to 13. Romans 12, 4 to 13. Stick, stick with it. I'm nearly there. From verse 4 of Romans 12, we read this. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
If a man or a woman's gift is prophesying, let them use it in proportion to their faith. If it's serving, let them serve. If it's teaching, let them teach. If it's encouraging, let them encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And then the very next verse, or at least part of a verse, verse 9 of Romans 12 says this, Love must be sincere. We serve out of compassionate hearts full of love. As Jesus was moved to action to touch the leper, so we must be moved to action to use our God-given gifts to serve other people. You remember in Philippians, Jesus came to take the form of a servant in Philippians 2. Love must be sincere. And so what I want to say about these five core values is that love has got to be absolutely at the core of it. Love has got to be at the core. You see the big five, you see the hand there again. I'm going to just comment briefly on that in a minute. You see worship, humility, authenticity, compassion and service. But all of those things that flow into and out of each other, at the center of that stands the nail-pierced hands of Christ. So look at your hand, put your hand in front of your face. And imagine that there is a nail print, the shape of a cross, right in the center of your palm. And if you're willing, as you count on the fingers of your hand to say with me, join in with these five core values. Imagine the nail-pierced hand of Christ, not your hand, but the hand of Christ. And touch your thumb, and we'll say it together, worship. Touch the next finger, humility. Touch the next finger, authenticity. Touch the next finger, compassion. And touch the little finger, service. And when you've got those five core values, we've at least got a simple picture that we can remember of what the nail-pierced hand of Christ says to us, the love of Christ, and you can get a handle on what it means to grow in love of God and love for others, to be followers of Jesus in all of life. These are the core values that underlie it. Now, where's Simon Appleby? There he is. Simon, you've got a brother that looks a lot like you. Why is that? You share his genes. Now, what he doesn't mean is they've both got a pair of Levi's that are his on a Wednesday and, and his brother's on a Thursday. What he means is their deoxyribonucleic acid, their DNA, is absolutely identical. Well, can I ask you, have you got identical fingerprints? No. He's got the same DNA in every cell of his body, apart from the red blood cells, there's no nucleus, there's no DNA. He shares the same genetic material, but they've got identical. This is like us. We have got common human DNA. We've got fingerprints, however, that are completely unique. So I'm not saying that everybody who's part of this church must look and be exactly the same, but we can share core values. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul writing to a church in Colossae about some beautiful attitudes, about some great ways to live. He says, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together. That's it in a nutshell. Let's go back to Philippians 2 one last time. Just one last time. As we go back to Philippians 2, I want to ask in closing that we adopt an attitude of gratitude. That we don't do what we do out of gritted teeth. But out of the embrace of the love of God in Christ Jesus who laid down his life for us. The one who is in very nature God but laid down his life on a cross. 
that we should do exactly what Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 14 to verse 16. We should do everything without complaining or arguing so that you and I may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Listen to this, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Do me a favor. Maybe the person sitting next to you needs some encouragement. I know it's difficult, but don't leave anyone out. Turn to someone near you and say, you are a star. Do it, go on. Tell them a star. Okay, let me tell you why they're a star. If the person sitting next to you is a follower of Jesus Christ and they hold on to the word of life, this love letter from God, the Bible, that tells us about the living word, Jesus Christ, if they hold on to the word of life, then sometimes, somehow, somewhere, someplace, on a front line, someone is going to say, what is it about you? What is it about you? What is it about, what are the values that underlie your life? What is your vision? What makes you different? Why on earth would you bother getting up early to go to church on a Sunday? And you'd say, I don't. I go to the evening service. I lie in until 12. <laughs> but if you get past that one, you can say, Cause actually, and you probably wouldn't use these terms, I hold on to the word of life. What does that mean? And then you get the chance to hold out the word of life to someone else. You get a chance to share Jesus with someone else. And if we don't get this concept, then it doesn't matter how good the preaching is in any church, because there'll be no one there that doesn't know Jesus to hear it. But if on your front lines you're being fruitful in the way you live and the way you act and the values you hold, then there's every chance that someone will catch a glimpse of Jesus in you. Let's pray. Father, help us, please, by the power of your Spirit to be followers of Jesus in all of life. Growing in love for you, Father God, and love for our sisters and brothers and love for others beyond the church. Father, help us to do that by living lives of worship, not just on a Sunday, but all of our life. Help us to follow you, Jesus, in all of life. Help us to live lives in humility before you and before man. Help us to live authentically and compassionately. And help us, Lord, on our front lines to love you and love others by serving them effectively with the gifts that you've given us. And Lord, we don't ask this just that our life would be enriched. Our lives will be enriched if we live this. But we ask it, Father, for your glory through Jesus and that many, many others would come to know of his love for them and come into a relationship with you through him. Hear our prayers, Father, because we come in Jesus' name.